Our text this morning in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so if you would open there with me, I would appreciate it. We've been going through the first 12 verses for the last couple of weeks, and we should finish up the first 12 today. But if we look at those 12 verses, they appear to form what's called a chiasm. A key is the letter X. And the idea is, in the Hebrews would often write things this way, we have two similar items, and then you have two more similar items down to a core thought. And when we look at this text, we see verse 1 and 2 and verse 12 are talking about our walk, a walk pleasing to God in everything in verse 1 and 2. And we read the text, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord, not for the man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward, for you are serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality, Colossians 3, 23 and 25. And verse 12 calls us to walk not just before the word, but war, not just before the Lord, but walk properly before the outsiders, the unbelievers, the unchurched. Moving in from that, the next level, we have a call to live our lives for God with specific items. Verse 3 through 8 we looked at last week was sexual purity. Verse 11 today is a call to live at peace, minding our own affairs and earning our own way in life. And then the central thought, which is where we'll be starting this morning, is a call to love in verse 9 and 10. Now, having just finished the epistles of John, we've had half a dozen messages on brotherly love because he goes over it again and again and again in the book trying to drive the point home. Uh, We'll be looking at it from a little different perspective today, but that is really central to the Christian life and the godly walk that we've been called to, walking in true love, in biblical love. But before we look at that, let us read the text. So the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress his brother and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and depend upon no one. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage, we look at the call to love, the call to peace, the call to walk properly before those outside. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to learn, to grow in our faith and our practice and fill us with the grace we need to live a new and better life, a life transformed by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever heard an unbeliever say, oh, wow, you can tell those people are Christians by their love? Mm. Throughout church history, that's always been the desire. But sadly, it's not the goal. It's not the reality. Uh, Christians 
don't always live that life of love that God has called us to. Now, if we, as individuals and as a church, have really been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we will know how to love properly. Remember the Ezekiel passage I've read before. We love because he first loved us. Oh, that's not Ezekiel. That is, he demonstrated his love by transforming us as a promise of the great Old Testament passage, which is Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. We love because he has first loved us, meaning that we have been born again. We've had that heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh put in. We've been caused by his spirit, which has been put in us, to then walk according to God's way, to God's will, God's word. So we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is a command we've had from him from the beginning. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 19 through 21. Love for our brothers is something that is often quite difficult but it is something that is brought about by that transformation of our life. The Holy Spirit working in us and speaking through Paul tells us that we need to be obedient to all of his revealed will. We saw in this passage in the beginning, and we ought to walk in a manner which pleases him, and it pleases him that we love those whom he has called, whom he has saved, whom he has put his image upon. We are being transformed into the image of God more and more in our life. We, well, all men bear God's image. We, especially the believers, bear it more so. It makes really perfect sense that love is the core thought in this chapter. This is kind of Paul's Christianity 101. He was only able to stay a few days with the Thessalonians. He was forced to leave for their sake. Otherwise, persecution might have destroyed the church. And so he never really got to finish all of his teaching and all of his encouraging. And in this chapter, he's summarizing the most important points. And the key is love, love for the brothers. This exhortation makes even more sense when that it is surrounded by the practical ways to demonstrate love. We demonstrate biblical love by remaining sexually pure. We demonstrate biblical love by living a proper life. And so that's what he has surrounded this call to. First, First John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves those who have been born of him. By this we know we love the children of God, that we love God and obey his commandments. For the love, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, First John 5, 1 through 3. Kind of a summary of John's teaching, particularly on love. But note the intricate connection there. If you love God, you'll automatically love your brother. And if you love God, you'll obey God. The three go together, hand in hand. If one is lacking, the others are in doubt. One of the fruits of saving faith is that we love God by obeying his revealed will, the Bible, and love his children, our brothers. We should note that this love is being exercised in a particular way. He's written this letter to the church, and he's talking about the love within the church. While demonstrating our love for God by being salt and light, by being a lamp on its stand, is doable alone and individually, It's normally exercised when the brothers are present. And where are the brothers present but in the church? Now, I'll be the first to admit it's easier to love somebody on the other side of the country than to love the person sitting next to you in the pew sometimes. We all know how that works. And that's why it's so important. Now, it's harder to love somebody when we see them and are reminded of our hurts, our annoyances, our grievances. 
But that's where we really get a chance to exercise our love. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul's admonition in Romans 12, 9 through 13. Genuine brotherly love, sincere love, is seen between people, particularly people who are present together. That's why we're exhorted, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he that is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that day is one of the main topics of the book of First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, and we'll be looking at it in verses 13 through 18. But we're to stir each other up to love by being together, by loving within the church. And that's what they were doing to the point where Paul is praising that repeatedly in this letter. We cannot stir them up, stir each other up to love if we're not together in our meetings. Now, that's the normal way in which we would do it. Not simply meeting friends that we get along with, but this is a meeting within the church. Remember what Jesus exhorted us to? If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Matthew 5:46. Now we need to be able to love those who are hard to love. I know before I was a Christian, I was impossible to get along with. After becoming a Christian, I've improved tremendously. I'm now only difficult to get along with. But there are people who have shown me love the entire time. The church demonstrating that love is one of the ways in which we encourage each other, one of the ways in which we receive God's grace through our brothers, that we might be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And so that's very important that we be together and deal with that. We show our brotherly love by loving the whole body of Christ, including those that are hard to love. It's not easy, which is why Peter encourages us that his divine power has been granted to us. All things that pertain to life and godliness and the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world due to sin and sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. It's a long path he encourages us to walk to get to true love. And he goes on, for it is these qualities, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, our sanctification should be growing through our life. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these things, these qualities, is nearsighted and blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So if you practice these, you'll never fall. Second Peter 1, 3 through 10. It's a great encouragement to remember that we need, it's a difficult and long path to get there. And we work on it day by day. Sometimes it's one step forward and two back. Sometimes it's two forward and one back. But we should be on our way and working towards that goal, as he talks about, adding to our faith all of these things until we come to biblical love. Like the Thessalonians, or if we, like the Thessalonians, start doing this as a matter of course, not just to our brothers, but really with all of God's people, then we really do become a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. The world will see our life, our light, our love. However, 
conflict comes. The Christian life is not a peaceful life. God has promised that whoever wants to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be raised to heaven on flowery beds of ease. No, will be persecuted. How we deal with those persecutions, how we deal with those trials, how we deal with trouble and conflict is really showing us where our love is in our heart. When we are dealing with the world, the conflicts tend to be more severe. And there's a reason for that. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Our life, our faith, our understanding of what biblical love is, these are spiritual matters, and the world doesn't agree with us because it can't understand it. And that gives rise to a lot of the conflicts we see today between beliefs, morals, and practices. On one hand, you have godless society, and on the other hand, you have biblical Bible-believing Christians, and they radically disagree. It gives rise to all the conflicts we see. Think about their religions, their theoretical science, abortion, sexual immorality, the LGBT movement. All of those are going to bring conflicts because we have a biblical view that says this is right, this is wrong, this is how we will live. And they have their sinful view, and they just can't understand the things of God because they don't have the Spirit of God. Now you might say, well, what then does biblical love look like to them? How do you love the godless? Well, if they're addicted to drugs and alcohol and have no money, we give them food, right? That's how you show love? When Paul was preaching in Athens, he told the Athenian philosophers and Mars Hill, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day, that, that day that we're talking about in First Thessalonians, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, Acts 17, 30 and 31. Hell is real. Hell is eternal punishment, eternal suffering, no hope of ever escaping. Is it loving to tell somebody about that? The world says, no, that's evil. You're hateful. But is it loving to let them go to hell without warning them? If your child says, oh, you know, I'm an X-man, I can fly, I just need to jump, and they jump and break their leg. Well, I need to jump higher because it wasn't high enough to activate my belief. So you take them down to the city and let them jump off the highest building? What do you tell them, is that love helping them in their foolishness? Or is it love to say, you're not, you can't. Repent from your foolishness and be real. Know the truth. When we call the wicked to repentance, what we are telling them is not, ha ha, I'm better than you. Although many people do that. That is not the purpose. The purpose is to call them to safety, to salvation, to turn them from the path that will lead them ultimately to eternal torment. And that's what it means to love. Love is not to make them feel better. Love is not to make them happy. That is the worldly view of love, the counterfeit view of love. Love is to really help them and to help each other the same way. Now, I mentioned that some people are kind of in your face and laughing at you and if you've paid attention to any of the so-called Christian news groups and Christian um, debate centers on the Internet, you'll see that there isn't a shred of love in those. <laughs> they're harsh, they're angry, they're in your face. How many of you have ever been persuaded to change your view by somebody getting in your face and calling you an idiot and calling you names and insulting you? Now, that is not useful. What does Peter say? But in your heart, honor Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, those people will stop at that point. But we need to read the next phrase. Yet, do it with 
gentleness, and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered and reviled for your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. Nobody's converted or persuaded by being raged at. Gentleness and respect and honor. That is how we deal with disagreements and conflict with the world if we want to show godly biblical love. What about those who are in the church, false teachers, those who are leading people astray, those who are creating trouble? Again, you know, these are un, heretics are generally unbelievers. They don't have the spirit. They can't understand the things of the spirit. So they think our teaching is wrong and their teaching is right. And they need to put their teaching forward. We read in First John that those people are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. The people who don't have the spirit listen to the people who don't have the spirit because they can't understand the things said by the people who have the spirit by true preaching and teaching, or even reading the scripture. An example of that would be my dad. Very sad, but he was when I went to visit him, he was doing a Bible study with his Bible study group on reincarnation in the Bible. He was part of the Association for Research and Enlightenment, a New Age cult. You know, they read the Bible and they don't understand because they don't have the Spirit of God. Tragic. Whoever listens to us, John goes on to say, whoever knows God will listen to us. Whoever does not know God will not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. First John 4, 5, and 6. Satan knows that the world will listen to his doctrine and hate the biblical doctrine. And he desires to deceive men and to lead them astray. And so inevitably... Satanic doctrine works its way into the church. Paul talks about that in 2 Timothy. He says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. That conflict will come because they are going to bring the false teaching into the church. And we have seen this happen even in the last few decades. There have been a number of big new teachings that they try to bring into all the churches, and the churches split. Some follow the heretic, some follow the church, some give up. They get tired of it. Why do I need to be in this battle all the time? The devil will send those twisting is the truth, the word, into the church and cause that conflict. But the church has to struggle to maintain its purity, to maintain the faith. Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3. Keep us be, to keep us from being led astray, conflict comes. And if you read through Paul's epistles, most of them have strong conflict over people bringing in false teachings. Still, we need to do those disagreements and handle them in a loving manner. The difference between the church that is shattered and the church that survives is really the heart attitude of love. If we cannot love those who are being deceived, if we cannot love the deceivers and try to fix things in a, you know, with patience, with long-suffering, with kindness, with honor, respect, then the church is destroyed. And we see that over and over again. On the other hand, if we do nothing, the church becomes not church of Christ. And we've seen that too. Where churches that were once sound become hostile to the Bible. I remember the origins of the Bible Presbyterian Church are from the PCUSA. 
and they were kicked out from the PCUSA over the battle with liberalism. Today, if you believe you know, that the Bible is inspired, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was sinless, that he died for our sins, any of those things, and you cannot be ordained as a minister in the PCUSA. They actually went so far as to apologize for evangelizing the Native Americans. And this is what happens if we don't fight. We lose the church. But the fight must be handled in love. Dealing with disagreements over doctrine must still be held by our belief in God and our love for the brothers. Concern for them. Dealing with disagreements with the brothers. Now, the first thing we need to ask when there's a conflict or when we're upset is, can we overlook it? Now, you might think, oh, you can't overlook sin. Proverbs has a lot to say about this, though. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11, again, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Proverbs 12:16 again a hot-tempered man stirs up strife but he who is slow to anger quiets contention Proverbs 15:18 it is not sin to overlook a minor matter for the sake of peace and comfort we don't need to be in everybody's face for every single bad thing if we did that none of us would have a moment of peace in our life and if you don't think you have those ask somebody close to you They'll tell you, you have those little problems and little irritating things you do. So being able to ignore an insult, to overlook an offense, to quiet contention, all of these things are considered to be good sense by God. Being hot-tempered is foolish and brings about strife. So if things can be ignored or just a gentle word, you know, that's not very nice. You shouldn't say stuff like that. Then it is sufficient. On the other hand, if the offense is serious and it can't be overlooked, Matthew 18 tells us how to deal with it. I don't really have time to go over that now, but we all know the matter. Take it to them quietly, privately, and try to get them to repent and work your way through the church courts if necessary, if it's serious enough. A lot of times you just have to decide, you know, it's not a matter worthy of the conflict. They've been, they've been shown their sin or their error, if it's not serious enough for them to need to be kicked out of the church, then you don't need to necessarily pursue it the whole way. It's a matter of prayer, where you draw the line. Because if you fail to discipline when it needs to be done, the church can be damaged. But if you're overly aggressive in persecuting every minor sin, then, of course, the church can also be damaged. Anyway, just as we were encouraged by the words we have here in 1 Thessalonians, remember also Jesus' words. There will be many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because of lawlessness will increase. The love of many will grow cold. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I was in a church for a year, for a year or so, as a, in half a year as an intern, it had been destroyed by conflict. And it was one-third of the church left. One-third had gone and followed the other pastor who had been caught in adultery. And the middle third, they'd stopped going to church. You know, we can't allow our love to grow cold because of conflict. If we handle it in a loving manner, we can continue on and persevere to the very end. And that's what Jesus himself has called us to do. So we've been encouraged to love, and that love should proceed from a pure heart, and that call to exercise it in sexual purity we saw last week is also followed by a similar call this week, a call to our life. We see that in verse 11. A call to live a peaceful life, minding your own affairs, earning your own living. Ambition is what makes the modern world go round. 
If you're not ambitious enough, you may not even get a job. People want somebody with ambition. Somebody wants to go somewhere. But that leads to strife and to conflict a lot of times. And that's why I had us read Ecclesiastes. He's looked at what can we get? We can be the best of the best. And what is his final conclusion? It doesn't actually get you anywhere. He was the wisest king. He was the mightiest king of Israel as far as you know, the lands that were subdued. Uh, he had everything, the richest king. He had everything his heart could desire from a worldly perspective. And he found it wasn't, wasn't meaningful, wasn't enough. I remember as a young atheist in my early working years, I subscribed to a book um, catalog on outdoor goods. I used to be very into being outdoors. And their, their motto was, the man with the most toys when he dies wins. And that was kind of my life before Christ. Earn more, work hard, get advanced. But that's not always helpful for the Christian life. Paul encourages us to aspire to live a quiet life, to make that our ambition, our aim, the thing we're striving for. That's what the word means. That We should strive for that quiet life. To the Romans, he said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's really the point that links these two passages. Beloved, never avenge yourself, etc., etc. He goes on, Romans 12, 14 through 21. The idea being that as a Christian, we are soldiers of the cross. We have a purpose. We have a goal. We have an end. What is that end? What is the chief end of man? Westminster Shorter Catechism, for those who don't know it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul says that if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men to be most pitied. We are making a sacrifice to follow Christ. We are, it's like we have enlisted in the army. When I was in the army, we got paid $500 a month. When I worked a part-time civilian job, I could earn twice that. <laughs> as opposed to their full-time pay. Uh, you know, you're making a sacrifice for a cause. And the cause is Christ. The cause is his kingdom, his glory, advancing that kingdom, living a life that glorifies him, even though that sometimes means we have to set aside the glories of this world. Living that life allows us to be living peaceably with others, allows us then to glorify God. A life without strife, a life without contention, a life in harmony with those around us, a peaceful, quiet, simple life. That should be our goal. Now, for the young, that may sound pointless. As you get older and older and older, boy, do I dream about that these days. Wouldn't it be nice to have a peaceful, quiet life without the strife, without the conflict, without the strain that that puts on our lives and our bodies and our souls and our spirit. That is, though, to be the goal here. He's what he's telling us. The world calls those people, and I, I was told this when I first became a Christian, that you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Because you're only thinking about the world, word of God and about God's kingdom and God's glory and God living with him for all eternity. What about in this world? You know, where would modern science be, modern medicine be? Well, I had a friend from rural Africa when I was in seminary. He'd come over to study. He grew up in a house that they built out of bricks they baked themselves. In the dry season, he walked a couple of miles with the water buckets to get water for the family. And you have to make multiple round trips. And he had been living in America for three years, going to seminary. And you know what he said? 
I'm looking forward to getting home. Because our life, well, we don't have the cars and the buses. They used to run the five miles to, to school every day and run home. This is Kenyan. <laughs> they could do that. Uh, he said, all the conveniences of modern society you have here are not as good as the peaceful life we had there. Where he lived, you could hear gunshots at night. It was in the city. You had to worry about being robbed and mugged, and you had all the arguing and the fighting and all the conflict, and that quiet life is not necessarily a bad thing. And modern society does not really have all that much to give us. Now, admittedly, I'd be dead by now without modern medicine, but I died in my late 30s without modern medicine. But that's not the point. The point is we have a call to live that life. And like everything that's spiritually called for in the Bible, the unspiritual, the godless, cannot understand it. It doesn't make any sense to them. It seems to them to be foolishness, and they mock and they curse. God warns us to do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. If you live that way, you're not going to be the world's richest man. Saw he was mocking AOC this week. Well, AOC was mocking him, and he was mocking her back. You know, you're not going to grow to that point if you're leading a quiet, normal life, if you're considering others' needs more important than your own. The world wants a full life with vain ambition, puffed up arrogance and conflict so that you know who is better. When I worked at GE as an IT guy, they were laying off people all the time. And they came up with a plan. The top 50, the bottom 50% of the people get no pay raise. The bottom 10% get laid off. The top 10% get a huge pay raise. And that middle point, they get a small raise. So everybody would work hard to get better, right? No, you ever see the show Survivor? Yeah, that was tame compared to life at GE. Everybody was sticking a knife in everybody's back all the time. You know, that desire to be first, that desire to advance, the desire to be better led to a miserable life. They want disharmony and strife, claiming that's how the world advances, that's how evolution happens. That's how scientific breakthroughs are made. But God wants us to have a quiet, peaceful life. What does it look like? Well, a life glorifying him, a life of true love, sexual purity, and as we'll see here, a life of taking care of ourselves and minding, to some extent, our own business. And that's the, sec the next item. He exhorts us not to be a busybody, but to mind our own business. Now, there's a tendency in many to have an excessive interest in things which are none of their business. They want to know everything about everybody's life. They want to examine it under a microscope. They want to find the flaws and the faults and bring them to the front and announce them to everyone. But what happens when they do that? Nothing good, generally. Now, some people are busybodies because that's what they want to be. Paul warns us, let none of you suffer, or Peter rather warns us, let none of us suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. First Peter 4.15. Some people meddle and are busybodies because they love strife. Remember poor David, he says, King David, they stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps, they have waited for my life. Psalm 56.6. And again, behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine. He calls on the Lord to rescue him. He who loves, who is glad at calamity, will not go unpunished, God says. Some like that strife. They want to make people suffer. A lot of times, you know, they can then say, see, I'm better than him. Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that person who I found fault with. It's a very sad state of affairs. Others meddle because they feel, I need to hunt out all the sin in the lives of other people. 
so that they can be better, ignoring the sin in their own life. When Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, an often misused text, he said, for the judgment you pronounce will be judged on you. The measure you use will be measured to you. Do you see the speck in your brother's eye? Do do you not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. And note the correct meaning of that passage is talking about the people who are fault-finding. It does not conflict with or nullify Matthew 18, talking about prosecuting serious sin. It doesn't overthrow the need for repentance or restoration. It is just talking about people who are nitpicking, finding the grain, the speck in the eye of one, ignoring their own sins and delighting in that. Remember what Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be sent, tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 1 and 6, 1 and 2. You know, real sin needs to be ten- dealt with. But fault-finding, nitpicking, the busybody who wants to find out what's wrong and make sure everybody knows, that's just terribly destructive. And he's saying, don't be like that. Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Don't interfere with things that you shouldn't be messing with. Don't make trouble unnecessarily. Some others are busybodies and meddlers because they feel being a heresy hunter is their purpose. Now, I've run into this a lot with people who have bad doctrine. They're heretics. And they want to make sure everybody believes that doctrine, so they go around hunting. I I can't tell you how many churches I've been in where the first thing people want to know is what Bible I'm carrying because they have the non-inspired translation. And I can't be saved. When I was in in Cambodia... They actually had an incident. I didn't know the seminary or the people, but one of the men was sharing with me that a pastor had come over and preached, you can't be saved unless you use the King James Version. And so the the kids in the seminary were weeping. What's this King James Version? I need to be saved. There are people who want to look at all of your theology, find where you disagree with them, and make a big scene about it. Of course, there are others who it's a matter of pride. They want to go through the, oh, you like that author? I see you're carrying a book by a Christian author other than me, your pastor. Uh, Did you know? I found fault with that person. And they want to share that and make everybody know. And that's pride. You know, being a busybody, a meddler, interfering with things like that, it's not our our cause. Yes, we need to maintain the purity of the church in its teachings, But most busybodies are simply a scourge to the church. They only breed trouble. The last group, and the one that made me most at mind here, is people who become busybodies because they have nothing better to do. They're idle. And so they go from house to house. They go from problem to problem. They look for things to do. And it causes trouble. That's why Paul exhorts us in this passage to work with our own hands, earning our own keep, being dependent on no one. Now, when Paul talked about the role of widows, which was the list of widows who would be fed by the church, he warns that young women shouldn't be, young widows shouldn't be put on the list because they learn to be idlers, going from house to house. Not just idlers, but gossips and busybodies. And so he encourages them to work. And the same thing elsewhere. Paul comes back to this problem in 2 Thessalonians where he says, For when we were with you, we would give this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul is talking really about people in the church who are living off the church, sponging off the church and being idle. But note, if they're not willing to work, they don't eat. Our entire welfare system has the wrong attitude. For we hear that some people among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now such people we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Clearly the problem of idleness leads to sin, and that seems to be happening in the church in Thessalonica, but we don't know what the exact details are. 2 Thessalonians 2 may shed a little light on it. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion occurs first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Anyway, the point, they seem to be in this belief that Jesus is coming. What's the point of going to work? I need to be at the church. I need to be thinking about God. I need to be waiting. You know, why bother? If you knew you were going to die in six months, why would you put a five-year plan together to work to prosperity? If you know the Lord's going to be coming any day, why worry about the future? They may have been thinking about that. Now, I've met people like that in my lifetime. You know who we're talking about, those who drop out, bunker up, wait for the end. It's coming. I got food, I got clothes, I got bullets. We're good. Now, they may have been doing something similar, waiting for the Lord's return. And we'd call them the pious but idle types. Where they'd given up on the world and were being idle. And Paul is encouraging them to stop that, get to work, earn your keep. You know, the Lord comes when he comes. It's not going to happen until these other things have happened. So it's not like it's going to be today. Um, work with your hands. Work quietly. Earn your own living. Uh, some people have actually taken that to mean blue-collar work. You have to work physically. That's more holy than intellectual work or trading or things like that. But the word... Translated there really does carry a broad meaning of work, including things like trading. The main idea is it's work to earn your food. In fact, that's exactly what he says in the second Thessalonians passage. <coughs> but they should work, carry their own burden, not be a burden to others, not leave any room for idleness, and that would make the church a better place and make their lives as Christians better and fulfill their purpose better, which is not to have the most toys when you die, but to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul then comes back to, in verse 12, the, the bookends, the main factor that we should be thinking about why all of this is so good and important, and that is the call to our Christian walk. Specifically here, walk properly before outsiders. In verse 1, it was walk so as to please God. Doing everything he's commanded, particularly maintaining our sexual purity, maintaining true biblical love towards God and man, living a quiet, peaceable life. And he adds a couple of reasons here. The first is that the world sees the way we walk. Now, those of you who have raised children, your children saw everything you did. Did you ever get called on that? Oh, but mommy, daddy, you, right? they see it. They know our sins. The world looks even more closely because the stakes are higher. They want to be able to say to God, oh, but look at that Christian. Aren't I better than him? Shouldn't I be in heaven? Shouldn't I be not, you know, viewed as not corrupt, not punished? The answer is, of course, <laughs> My only entrance into heaven is because Jesus paid for my sins, not because I stopped doing them, or not because I have no sin. If we say we have no sin, John says, then we don't even know God. They, get, they look at us, though. They watch. They're careful. Peter encouraged us to live as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. First Peter 2, 11 and 12. 
you know, they they see our hypocrisy if we're not living our life as God says. They may reject it as being foolish life that we should be leading, but they know we're not leading it. Paul says to the Jews who were caught in their own hypocrisy, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Romans 2, 23 and 24. You know, we who boast in the law, Lord, if we're dishonoring him by our lives, by our walk, and the world is seeing that, then God's going to be blasphemed because of our walk. Our testimony is really important amongst the Gentiles. You know, when I was a bitter atheist who persecuted Christians, when God moved in my heart, I went from church to church to church and never heard the gospel, probably never met a Christian. And one day at church, at work, I'm like, well, I know so-and-so is, you know, lives a very different life. He goes, he goes to church in the middle of the week. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> and so I asked him. And I told him that I'd been to this church and the pastor had said, you know, well, the first church I went to, nobody would speak to me. The second church, the pastor told me to go to a church closer to my house. Um, it didn't go well. And he's like, we're at a church? <laughs> Come to my church. And I heard the gospel. And the Lord moved hearing that gospel. You know, he had already called me to his church so that I would hear. And he moved it in my heart and gave me a new heart. And I put my faith and trust in him. Because he had such a good testimony amongst the atheists who persecuted him personally, he was able to bring me to hear the gospel. Our, our testimony is of great importance. And that's where Paul finishes up chapter tw or verse 12 of this section. We're to walk in a way pleasing to God and visible to outsiders. And so we should keep that in mind. That is his summary of basic Christianity 101. We don't need to be the best and the fastest and the strongest and the most glorious and the most respected and the most loved by a godless world. We want to be known and loved and recognized by God. We want him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And in our service, we live a different life than the world lives, a life the world cannot understand. We hold ourselves to a standard they reject because it comes from God. And we're encouraged never to let that love grow cold. And that's one of the ways we're being together as a church family really helps. We can share our trials. We can share our struggles. We can encourage one another and persevere to that day. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this brief summary of the, in these 12 verses of what the basic Christian life should look like, a life of obedience to you, a life centered on love for you and love for your children, a life centered on bringing glory to your name. And we pray, Lord, that you'd grant us the grace we need to live that life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.